Hello to our listeners and welcome to TNT ESQ. Along with my co-host Teresa Quinlan, I'm Rhys Thomas. We make up TNT. For those of you who don't know, TNT is our initials. Simple, right? Uh, we're here to explode the status quo. This series is all about talking with people who are helping us to think differently so we can start doing differently. Our guest today is Shelly Brown. So Shelly Brown is this powerhouse of an individual, believes mindfulness is not what we've all been led to believe. And in our conversation, we're going to talk a little bit about nakedness and being accessible. So hang on to your chairs because this is going to be insanely awesome. So mindfulness is becoming more and more mainstream, and yet it still gets greeted with this cringe factor. It gets put into the too weird for the workplace basket and maybe even in the same category as a massage chair. And so what Shelly knows is that coming from the cringe mentality as high octane athlete, a, a sales pro, total skepticism is something that happens more often than not. She really learned very quickly the truth and what has now become her way of life and turned into her purpose. So thank you for joining us today, Shelly. We are ready to dive into Rockstar Mindfulness. All right. So happy to be here. It is such an honor. When we have an obsession, like a good focus thing that has become our purpose, there is usually a story that surrounds how that began for us. So please give us the story of how that started for you. Thank you. Like many, there's many different stories, but the most pivotal story I probably want to discuss is I was always high energy, always what some would refer to as high strong. And by the way, if you use that word, it's not a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) And I needed some way to channel that energy because as my career grew, the velocity of technology kept surging as it still is. And my responsibilities at work became more abundant and the stress grew as a result. This high energy was becoming stress energy. So the way I channeled it was I taught spin classes and then I started running and you know, Teresa, I caught the bug and I ran a lot of marathons, a lot of races. And, you know, that can mitigate a lot of that stress because there's a lot of great things about it. There's fellowship, there's camaraderie, there's competition, there's all these awesome things. But for me also, it was the accolades, it was the accomplishment, and I wore it like an identity. Mm -hmm. And in one fell swoop, it's like the rug was pulled from underneath me, my vertebrae collapsed, and it crushed the nerves going down my leg. And this happened really, really fast. And so no longer was I this high-strung, high-energy, slightly stressed person, I got thrown into complete fight or flight. I was no longer the person that I thought I was. I had this identity outside of myself and that's not who I was anymore. I couldn't run. I could barely walk. And actually, ultimately, I couldn't walk. I couldn't work. I didn't want to take narcotics. So I was thrown into this complete chronic pain cycle. When you're thrown into that, you feel like 
This is never going to end. It is always going to be like this. It was crazy. And even after I had a lumbar fusion and I was physically well, my stress response was completely messed up. I just got into this fight or flight mode and somebody had introduced me to mindfulness years before this. And I was like, oh, no, 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 that's for tea drinking yogis. And I had that cringe factor because I was like, no, I am an ultra marathoner. I am a high powered salesperson. What am I going to do sitting in a lotus position and my third eye is going to open and I can't sit still? That's just weird. Well, when I tried everything else, that was the last thing I hadn't tried. And it was so transformational that I had to find a way to help invite people to the practice. You mentioned something that seems to have a running theme, that individuals get a pebble and they ignore it, then they get the rock and they ignore it, and then they get the boulder and they ignore it. And it was the only thing that the universe could have sent me that would have slowed me down. And so the universe spoke the wisdom of the boulder and provided the opportunity for what the individual actually needed in that moment. Absolutely, 100%. But it wasn't that moment that got me to the practice. It was trying to go back to the work world and make things look like they had before. Mm. But I was going from zero to 10 in an instant. My stress response was a was which is a physiological response, not just a cognitive. Otherwise, we could talk ourselves out of anything. Mm -hmm. This stress response, even after the pain was gone, was full throttle craziness. And so I would get a job and I would start getting into this like stress reactivity mode. And I would blame the culture, I'd blame the people, I would do everything but really focus on myself because nothing was working. I'd get another job hoping that the environment could fix me. And I would end up getting put on performance improvement plan. And obviously there's things about cultures that can really, really enhance the stress factor. When you feel like you're a KPI, when you feel like you're a metric, when you feel like your worth is only your performance, not only does that affect you, but it affects the people that report to you. And I treated other people just like I was being treated, just like the way I felt. And it just had that awful trickle down effect. Ultimately what happened was I was at a job and I had an outer body flip out experience where I heard something, I interpreted it wrong in front of 25 people. I took my headset, I threw it on the floor and said, F this place, I F and hate it, I am leaving. And then it was like, oh, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, the kettle burst. And I literally had like what some would consider a nervous breakdown. Wow. You obviously described yourself as having this kind of high metabolism, high stress sort of uh, already. And we talk about the physiological or the neuroscience behind it. And you have this, maybe you have a, a natural um, higher level of cortisol in your body than someone else. I don't know, perhaps it's a thing or not. And you found an outlet. And we're not talking about just a normal run. We're talking about ultra marathons, which you know scares me to even think about. By doing such high intensity activity to get rid of this cortisol, it balanced you out. And it meant that you could live whatever the, your natural frequency was because you had this outlet to just wipe it all out. 
And as soon as it went, there was no outlet for it. And I'm interested to understand what it was when you had that first experience with the mindfulness. What was it that made it click? What, what was it that clicked this switch and made you realize that for whatever reason you found your calling or your purpose for people who are maybe teetering on the edge of that skepticism or ready to dive in? What was it that tipped you over? Someone who was all the way over here as a skeptic and now is all the way over here as a passionate advocate. Yeah, thanks for asking. So I had kept trying everything. I listened to TED Talks. I read books. But the thing that made the biggest difference to me that I will share with other people, this, when somebody told me, there's nothing wrong with your head. Your wires are crossed. There's a central nervous system response that's physiological. And mindfulness can help reset those wires. So when you hear that it's not just up here in your brain and that you do all these things, but they're not resetting this response. And without getting into the science, everything when you're stressed and it's sustained goes through the amygdala. So everything's a threat and you no longer process through the prefrontal cortex, which is the CEO of the brain, which tells you this is stressful. This is real fear. This is perceived fear. So everything goes through that stress response. So I joined an eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction program. And it was eight solid weeks. And the research shows that the eight weeks really is what makes a change to the brain from a sustained practice of meditation and also incorporating mindfulness practices into your daily life. So it was two and a half hours, once a week for eight weeks. So that is what really, really changed everything for me. But then learning that mindfulness is not just about cultivating calm. Mm -hmm. It is the practice throughout the rest of your life that makes it the powerful cell phone. You don't use your cell phone just to make calls. There's all kinds of apps. If we think that the practice of mindfulness is only just meditation and the purpose is just being calm, that literally is like using your cell phone just to make calls and not using it for anything else. And then in the real world, if we use this analogy, people rarely use their phone for calls. <laughs> so it's so a real, when I, if I practice mindfulness for meditation for the 10 minutes to be calm, then when I step back in the real world, just like I don't use my phone for phone calls, I'm not using what I just did 10 minutes ago. So you're speaking about the capacity of adopting something that you carry with you all of the time. And if it was to feel different, what would be that descriptor word that, that you could give us to compare the difference between how you felt before? Because we have a somewhat description of like high octane to how do you feel now as you exist in the world? Yep. So the difference in how I feel is I get to bear witness to my thoughts most of the time. So instead of reacting I actually receive information or I have thoughts and I actually can almost see them so that I have the opportunity to contemplate and respond. Mm. So I have a, a, a very balanced way of living. And part of that is because now I'm able to, pre to process information through the prefrontal cortex. And it also literally does change the brain and a lot of that comes from the formal practice because that's literally the bicep curl meditation is to mindfulness 
what working out is to being fit. Gotcha. So to go back to the phone analogy, the meditation is like you plugging your phone back in to recharge overnight so that you wake up and you are on full power to face whatever task your, uh, your phone uh, requires in any given situation. So I love that we're talking about the neuroscience and far be it for me to, to divert the situation, but I need to get back to um, this, this idea of naked. And um, I want you to tell us about that, please. Sure. I'm actually going to rebrand my business. My business is ROI Mindfulness. And that's kind of a play on words, obviously. And that's real time, real time observations and insights. And I realized that that was me being in that kind of corporate silo. Mm. And we know in, in our world with a lot of the people in our network, how it feels to be wearing, you know, that corporate mask and not being the whole person. And I was realizing that in my business, I was siloing myself still from that world I had been aligned with for so long, this ROI mindfulness. What mindfulness also does is really help strip us of our own narrative, our own story, so that we can really be authentically who we are. So that's kind of the naked part. It's I can be who I am because I don't believe all the bullshit in my brain and all the self-talk and all the self. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It means it's over there knocking at the screen door. I'm at the kitchen table going, hey, nope, you can't come in here, right? So I can witness it and be like, all right, Betty bitch, you can't come in. All right, pity patty. You're over there. I'm right here. I see you. I acknowledge you. Just stay over there. It's so powerful to get to that space where you are, you're a third party observer to the thoughts that you didn't create for yourself, but are part of not who you are. They're part of your experience. Let's put it that way. Because I, I too don't believe they're who you are, but they have been planted, supplanted, whatever, however we want to call that they got there. They're there. So they're part of your experience, this capacity of self-awareness to be able to look at those and acknowledge them for what they are is so powerful for individuals to be able to quote unquote, gain control over their emotional experiences in life. Yeah. So when you go into introducing naked mindfulness or mindfulness naked and accessible or whatever this brand is going to be, and I'm super pumped to hear what it is because ROI mindfulness was already quite brilliant. How do you introduce this to people in a way that really does feel accessible for them? Thanks. So the rebrand hasn't happened yet. And one other thing I wanted to say is the word naked mindfulness is also about introducing mindfulness itself. It's sort of a stripped down version. If you do a search on Google of mindfulness at work, you are going to see a ton of pictures with people like this, sitting on the floor in a business suit. Right. I will never ask anybody to sit on the floor, nor I actually use music. I think a lot of people come into the corporate environment or into organizations or as a keynote and within five minutes, they're telling everybody, now go ahead and close your eyes and focus on your breath. And that's great. But a lot of people are going to be like, ew, yeah. which is completely antithetical to what this practice is about. So I invite people to listen to music. I play about 30 seconds of music and I ask people, what did you notice? And most people will say, oh, I heard drums, I heard a singer, I heard this, I heard that. And then what I do is 
I ask them, I invite them to listen to that same snip of music and I ask them to see if they can bring their awareness to a specific instrument. About 30 seconds later, I ask them again, what did you notice? And nine times out of 10, you'll hear people say, oh, I heard the instrument, but then I got distracted. Oh, I felt hunger pains or oh, my, oh, I heard noise outside the room and I was distracted and I congratulate them. Then the next time I have them do the same thing and when they get distracted or when their mind takes them away from that specific instrument, I tell them to note it. Oh, I hear a guitar. Oh, I'm hungry. Oh, this is crazy. Oh, she's weird. And come back to that instrument again and again. And this is the object of our awareness. It could be the conversation that you're having with your direct report. It could be a conversation that you're having with your child. It could be something that you're doing right in that moment. It could be drinking a glass of water. That's the object of your awareness. Distractions happen no matter what. That's life, whether they're internal or external. And noticing that your mind has wandered is a moment of mindfulness. Mm. Getting again to bring that attention back to the object of awareness is the practice. When I think about mindfulness, I think about giving attention and, and it's about giving that attention in a, in a purposeful way, in a, in a specific way. As you said, when you isolate all the different instruments, you're teaching them to do that exact practice. One of the other things that I associate with it is breathing. You've talked about meditation, you've talked about attention. What about breathing? Because I know that's a real, really important thing. Is that just another tool like meditation? Is that just something that gateway into it? Or is it an important part of, of what you teach or how, how people can use it practically? Breathing is awesome because if you're alive, the chances are you can breathe. <laughs> definitely a really accessible object. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely an accessible object for attention for all of us. Some people aren't great at accessing their breath. So they could do walking meditation. It's the same principle. It's, it's focusing in the moment, paying attention in a specific way on purpose, you know, without judgment. And without judgment doesn't mean we have no judgment. It means we notice when we're judging. People might find walking for their meditation more accessible. But the breath is really important because when we have even a micro moment of meditation, like maybe your telephone is a trigger for a deep breath, it literally kind of helps put the oxygen through your whole entire body and take all that energy and just kind of bring it down. So if you ever feel really stressed at work and you sit in a chair, stand up, put your arms out and take a deep breath and let all that energy dissipate throughout your body. Because a lot of times when we're stressed, we hold it in a certain place in our body, in our chest, in our heads, in our fingertips. So when we take that deep breath, it really can help that concentrated energy that's in that specific place dissipate. Yeah, at the beginning, you described like the parasympathetic nervous system and its overload. And I imagine that mind wandering is a byproduct of an overloaded system. Mindfulness, intentionally slowing your focus, breathing, all of these activities you are bringing forward to people allows them to rewire the parasympathetic nervous system, which then follows suit that then their mind wanders less. 
Yeah, so mind wandering is not a parasympathetic ner nervous system reaction, it's a human reaction. Okay. We have about 60,000 thoughts a day. A lot of people think that they're not meditating right because they think a lot. Minds think, and that's what they do. And so a couple of the really important attitudes that we bring to mindfulness is kindness, gentleness, non-judgmental. Because if we beat ourselves up every time our mind wandered, we would be black and blue all over our bodies. Yeah. It does help the mind wander less and maybe not always. But the practice is noticing and coming back again and again. I mean, there's days where your mind's going to wander so much because something really important is going on in your life, good or bad. Listen to what you're saying, how my interpretation of it is, what I've read about it. For me, it resonates with the word discipline. And it's about developing that discipline or focus or commitment or whatever it is through practice. And you said that it takes about eight weeks for habits to form or, or shift in your mindset to, to take effect. What happens after you've done that eight weeks? It's, it's funny. You know, mindfulness comes from Buddhism roots and, and Buddhism in itself means awakened and enlightened. I'm not trying to help anybody be enlightened, but I am trying to invite them to practice being present. Mm -hmm. I don't believe you ever arrive. The eight weeks that changes the brain does really focus on the meditation piece and changing the gray matter in the brain. Meditation is a very small part when I talk to organizations, when I'm working with organizations. The practice of mindfulness in the way we show up for others is a lifelong practice. And I think meditation too is, is a lifelong practice. I don't think we ever arrive. So one of the things you mentioned, because I think this is for our listeners who are in roles of like leadership and in organizations and are really trying to be better for their people. One of the things you mentioned is that mindfulness practices help to extend our capacity to be present or our time in the present. So from a leadership standpoint, if I start practicing this, what are some of the benefits that I will notice I'm now capable of doing for the people I'm leading? So that's a great question. And so I would love to offer the answer and also in conjunction with some of the practices that I've heard some people discuss on TNT ESQ. You had Oscar on last week and being what being present does for us is when we're a mindful leader, presence is the number one thing that we can be for people. Just like Oscar says, you know, giving attention is the most important gift that you can give to another person. And so in a leadership role, being present means we're open. It means we're grounded. It means we can have difficult conversations because we're not bringing 8 million different thoughts into that conversation. We're present for it. We can see how the other person is taking this information in. Mm -hmm. And also when we practice mindfulness, because we don't have all this stuff going on in our heads, that openness helps us cultivate more compassion. Mm -hmm recognizing our shared humanity. It's recognizing that everybody wants to be happy. Mm -hmm. Everybody suffers, and that's different than pain. Everybody suffers. Yes. 
being a mindful leader and being very deliberate and intentional about how we meet, where we meet, what we say, mm -hmm. taking people away from our desk, shutting down our computer, turning off our phone and being intentionally present for others. I also feel that mindfulness helps us be more creative and helps us be more creative problem solvers as leaders. Meditation coming back again and again, that's a beginner's mind. So in mindfulness in real life, having that mentality of beginning again allows us to be innovative, allows us to try new things because we know that we can always try and begin again and again. So the resilience factor increases as well. Yeah, I'd be remiss if we didn't discuss the correlation, the combinations, the interactions, the differences between self-awareness, emotional intelligence, and mindfulness. Seeing as we're all three here, I'll ask you what your, your idea of where they interlope, where, they, where the, the difference is, where the boundaries are. So for me, the self-awareness is more about the internal process, the emotional intelligence bit is, is about how we interact with, with the outside, with, with the other people, and the mindfulness is the practical, practical application of how we just keep all of that constantly going, and it is like the recharging bit that, that keeps all those functions going. So how do you see that relationship between those three? Are they, are they similar? Are they completely different? And what do you think of that analogy I just came up with on top of my head? <laughs> <laughs> they're, definitely, they're definitely similar. And, and I'm going to leave the EQ space to you guys. When we talk about self-awareness in a mindfulness perspective, it's how am I being right here, right now in real time? Mm -hmm. And there's four foundations of mindfulness that help us practice self-awareness. So we've already established that we can create that space between stimulus and response between input and how we react. But there's even more sort of minutia of that when it comes to how we're being in real time. And it has to do with the four foundations of mindfulness. Do you wanna be my example, Teresa? Yes. Okay. What is something that you do all the time and after you do it, you say, darn it, I wish I hadn't acted that way. I can't believe I reacted that way again. Oh, I do think one that sort of reverberates with most people is how we respond when we're driving. That's a great one. Yeah. So tell me about a situation that happens where you react and you're like, ah. Oh. When people drive slowly and they're in the fast lane. Okay, so you're in the fast lane, somebody's in front of you, they're driving slow. Yeah. Where do you feel that in your body? my face okay tell me how does your face feel really hot so the first foundation of mindfulness is the bodily sensation because if you know what's going on with your body you're by default present it's going to tell you when you ate too much drank too much have you ever walked by a piece of trash and like turned before you even realized because you know you have to pick it up your body will turn before that thought even hits your brain okay so your face is hot that's your bodily sensation. Is that pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? It's unpleasant. Okay, great. What's the thought? That person should not be in the fast lane. <laughs> They're breaking the common sense rules of driving on the road. 
And you know, most of the thoughts in our head are bullshit, right? Oh yeah, totally and completely. I know there's no logic to that whatsoever. They could drive wherever the bleepity bleep they want to drive. Yeah. <laughs> what, what's the behavior that ensues, Teresa? What happens? Usually I say out loud, get out of this lane. Some people are worse. Some people roll down the window and they stick their finger out or they get like really, really mad. And then you feel ridiculous right. because all this negative energy that you just experienced for the next person. And if there's somebody else in the car, you're talking about it with them, right? <laughs> okay. If we backtrack mm -hmm. any one of those four foundations, one, your face, if you notice that your face gets hot and you take a deep breath, maybe that redness or that hot feeling is going to go away. Maybe it doesn't, you get to the feeling tone of unpleasant. We deal with unpleasant things all the time. Can you sit with the unpleasantness and not allow it to take over, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So your face is hot. You determine that it's unpleasant. So at any one of those points, you can course correct. That person's a jerk. You notice yourself thinking that. Is that really true? <laughs> all right, whatever. I'm not going to waste my energy on this. Now, when the behavior happens again, maybe you go and get ready to be like, that person's a bleepity bleep, and maybe you don't even say something. So over time, you can course correct and change patterns. You know, how that might show up for somebody at work. You get an email from one of your direct reports, the contract didn't come in because the person decided to cancel. You're ready to send them an email that says, what happened? Monday morning, your direct report doesn't want to come into the office and see the first thing in his email is you splurting out what happened. Maybe you walk over to that person's desk at 10 o'clock. How you doing? How was your weekend? Let's take a walk and maybe have that conversation in a more mindful way. That's how we can use the Mount Four Foundations to help us practice self-awareness. That's beautiful. And before you do that, so I love that example. Thank you so much for taking through sort of the simplicity of the model itself. We all know that execution can be difficult because we are, we are well-trained in our habits. Let's just say that. <laughs> it's many years that we've been perhaps behaving in a particular way. I am taking myself from what you have said, and I am going to carry it in my back pocket because it has a deep resonance for me. Mindfulness gives an opportunity to build your capacity of understanding around you can begin again. And I think that is just really so powerful, especially in leadership. If we want innovation and change is happening all the time, if I negate the possibility that we can start again, then I will always feel frustrated or escalated or elevated or at my wits' end or whatever. And if I can remember this small moment, of the mindfulness practice, soft breathing exercises, full-on meditation teaches me how to hold space for, hey, why don't we just start over? That's the rock star mindfulness part because it's all about how we show up for each other. The meditation, the practices, that is all practiced like a rock star. When they get on stage, bam, they're right in front of you. So all that stuff that we do, 
is practicing so that we can be a rock star of our awareness and show up better for each other. So I love that because beginning again is probably the most important part. The compassion piece for me is, and I'm sure for all of us, is so huge. One of my favorite thought leaders in the space, Michael Bunting, talks about why do teams like to play in their home field? Because they're at home, that's where the support is. And if we can make work feel like it's the home field, mm -hmm. and Michael Bunding says so many people come to work feeling like they're at an away game. And so it's all about engaging with the heart. And the only way we can do that is when we are present. Beautiful. So, okay, we'd like to finish uh, with the show with our hashtag, not anymore. Uh, an opportunity for you to leave the audience with with something to, to not just think about but actually start doing in in the world we live that we're being inundated with more demands more pressure more stress we can't not fail to recognize the impact and the practical applications that mindfulness and adopting that mindfulness can have on your personal and your business life in, in all aspects of your life so there was a, a quote from a Harvard Business Review, and it said something about through, through dedication and practice, it helps strengthen discipline and focus, uh, which we need to foster resilience, which you mentioned earlier, and the capacity for collaboration, and also the ability to lead in complex conditions. What is, it, what is the one thing you'd like to leave our listeners thinking about and then maybe doing tomorrow when they head into work and uh, the usual stress of Monday morning hits them and they remember... Shelley Brown's wise words. I want to leave you with mindfulness may not be what you think it is. It is an incredibly important part of leadership. Go ahead and explore it because there's things you can implement immediately for your culture. The one biggest thing is we don't practice mindfulness for ourselves. We practice mindfulness to show up better for each other. Awesome. I love that. We need to remind everyone listening how they can get in touch with you, how they can find out more about naked mindfulness. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Nate, I wasn't sure on the official rebrand title. So I was like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> naked mindfulness. Yes. How can they get in touch with you, Kelly? Up's a little bit more for me, and then I'm going to go naked for my cover shoot. No. <laughs> it's ROI mindfulness.com. I am very active on LinkedIn, so please hit me up on LinkedIn, and also a little bit on Instagram at ROIMindfulness.com. Now we get to the fun bits that everyone's talking about, the rapid fire Q&A, 10 statements, two choices. We encourage you not to think too much about it and just give us amygdala, <laughs> uh, immediate response. <laughs> Are you ready? Carpool karaoke, like this is the famous moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, number one, manager or leader? Leader. Number two, active or reactive? Active. Number three, black and white or gray? Gray. Optimist or realist? Optimist. Canada or England? Oh, I live with somebody from England. Uh, well, I think I know the answer to this. Heart or head? You know it. 
But yeah, for those of you that aren't watching, Shelley has been wearing this incredible heart badge that she she wears lots of times when she shows up here just to, and I did notice there was a small one on the side as well. Yeah, amazing. Number seven, empathy or assertiveness? Empathy. This one is also pretty obvious. Uh, number eight, introvert or extrovert? Oh dear, extrovert. Hell yeah. Uh, number nine, Logical or emotional? Mumbo. <laughs> and finally, number 10, innovation or process? Innovation. Yeah, awesome. Well, look, I knew this was gonna be fun. I knew this was gonna uh, get, get silly, but also incredibly informative. So uh, it's been a real pleasure. You've been such a great supporter of both me and Teresa and the podcast. And uh, it's an absolute honor and pleasure to have you here to help demystify some of the preconceptions about what mindfulness really is, give you an opportunity to launch or talk about your new launch. Teresa, do you have anything to, to finish with? Your, your good friend? I do. Your capacity to bring it to a simplistic phrase, make work feel like the home field, was like it's mind blowing. There's a lot of things that you shared in here. I can begin again and that's great for innovation. But this one simplistic thing as a leader, how am I making work feel like the home field for someone? Home field advantage, we all know exactly what that means. What am I doing to make that experience for someone as their quote unquote coach? And I just think that if someone listened to this and went to work the next day and tweaked one element to do that, every single person's workplace experience would be cataclysmically different. I agree. And I can't take credit for the home field quote. That's Michael Bunting. Michael Bunting, yes, we know. But you brought it here for us in this space. Now nobody, <laughs> now nobody needs to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> the best way for us to find out if we are giving you, our listener, the value of your time by helping you think differently so you can do differently is if you write a review and give a rating on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on.